you have your Bibles, you can open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, and we'll be looking at the end of chapter 12. The end of chapter 12 and the first uh, couple verses of chapter 13. Uh, so the end of chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. So Mark chapter 12, verse 38. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you look in front of you, or uh, beneath you if you're on the front row, uh, there should be a Red Pew Bible on page 849. Page 849 is the page we'll be on in your Red Pew Bible. Uh, but if you have your own Bible, uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, at the end of uh, verse 38, we'll be looking at these few verses uh, this morning, talking about the uh, deception of appearances, the deception of appearances. But before we uh, read God's Word and go any further, let's uh, once again commit this time uh, to Him asking that He would be with us. Father, we ask now that You uh, be with us, that You guide our minds, that You free us from distractions, that You help Your words flow from my mouth. I pray that You would guard me from any error, that You would uh, grant the ability to communicate Your Word with clarity and accuracy. And I pray for each individual that is within the range of my voice now, uh, that You would give them the ability to hear Your Word in clarity and accuracy. And that we would not only just hear words this morning, but that we would understand your word and that it would drive us to Christ. It would drive us to the cross. It would drive us to repentance. It would drive us to a deeper love for your son and a deeper commitment to uh, the work of your kingdom. So, Father, we can't do any of these things in our own strength, so we ask that your spirit would be with us and guide us in this time. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So like I said, we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 uh, through the end of the chapter, and then the first few verses of chapter 13, talking this morning about the deception of appearances. I'm sure that many of you have, have seen before uh, these images that some people will put on paper, uh, and it may be some, some different size shapes or lines or circles or whatever, that looking at them it appears that the lines are crooked or this circle is bigger than the other circle. But in reality, uh, that the lines are really straight, although they appear crooked, or, or these two circles that they have uh, you are the same size, although they appear uh, to be different sizes. Uh, there's a website, I think uh, it's called uh, itricks.com. Uh, they just have endless little things that you can go on, and, and, and these things that deceive the eyes, that that which appears one way, in actuality is a different way. And the best biblical example of this that I think of uh, is a story that, that many of us know is when David was anointed king. Uh, if you remember, the prophet Samuel was sent by God to Bethlehem to the family of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. The king that would follow that uh, king, that they, the first king that they had, who was Saul. And if you remember in uh, the book of Samuel, as this story is recounted, uh, Nathan, excuse me, uh, Samuel uh, comes to Jesse's household... And he sees Jesse's oldest son. And what comes to mind for Samuel is this, surely this is the next king of Israel. Because as you know, a king should look a certain way. Uh, the reality is, is that I don't look like a king, and, and most of you don't either. But there are some people that look like kings. And just as we have the presidential race that will soon be heating up, you know, there are some people that look presidential. And there's some people that don't. And simply not looking presidential will often 
You know, it doesn't matter what kind of policies you have. If you don't look like a president, then odds are you're not going to get elected. So Samuel was thinking like most of us think, that a king should look a certain way. And Jesse's oldest son looked a certain way. But God quickly told him, you know, Samuel, this is not the king. And actually what God says to Samuel in, in chapter 16, verse 7, He says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. He says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesse proceeded to bring out seven sons. And each one of them, Samuel continues to say, this isn't the king, this isn't him, this isn't him. And he asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, oh yeah, there's one more, you know, the little guy that's out there tending the sheep. But this guy whom Samuel would not have picked, And obviously his own father would not have picked to be the next king. God has chosen to be the king of Israel. David. And we know that David is chosen not because of his outward appearance. Although the scriptures say that he was a handsome man. But obviously he didn't look as kingly as the other brothers did. But he was chosen because of his heart. Because of the condition of his heart. He had a broken heart. Before God, that he sought God, that he sought the kingdom of God. And as the writer of Acts says, that, that David was a man who was after God's own heart. This is the way God described him that this man, David, was after my own heart. So we see here this biblical example of that appearances at times can be deceptive. And this is what Jesus is getting at in this passage is that we're going to see three different things. Three things that represent on the outside something that would be good. But as Jesus begins unpacking it, we recognize that the outward appearance of these things are deceptive. And they are bankrupt on the inside. Uh, so let's, let's look together, uh, starting in verse 38 of chapter 12. Verse 38 of chapter 12. And Mark writes, he says, And in his teaching, Jesus' teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So the first thing we see here is that we are to beware of the appearance of spirituality. To beware of the appearance of spirituality. And he uses the scribes for an example. Now who are the scribes? The scribes were these religious leaders that uh, were very trained in the knowledge of God's Word. So if you ask them about a specific passage or where is this at, odds are they could tell you. They, they, their life was devoted to the, the knowledge of God's Word, the Old Testament. And so these man, men you would think would be spiritual men. And in fact, they did things to give the perception of spiritual spirituality. That as Jesus says, you know, beware of them because they, they're wearing these long robes. And they like greetings in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So this idea that the way they dress, they give this idea of sophistication and spirituality. And the way that they uh, talk to people, they give this idea that they are important. And they have a sense of priority that they, they should be a priority in your life because of who they are. They're scribes. 
You know, they spend their life studying God's Word. They spend their life copying God's Word. They spend their life teaching God's Word. Therefore, we are there. They're saying we're important people. And therefore, we wear these robes so that you will know that we are spiritual people. In case you didn't know that just because we're scribes are spiritual, that we're going to wear these robes and give the display that we are uh, a little bit more spiritual than you are. So when you see us in the marketplace... You should say, you know, oh, scribe, let's say his name was, was Johnny. Oh, you know, scribe Johnny, you know, you are just the best scribe I've ever met. You know, that lesson that, that you uh, gave the other day was just great. That these things, that the way you answer these questions, you know, you are the most spiritual scribe I've ever met. In fact, you're so much more spiritual than all those other scribes that I talked to. And the, Jesus is saying, these scribes love to hear these things. That, that puff up this idea that they are spiritually superior to other people. And they love this idea that people are putting them at the places of honor at the, at the table. But then the next verse, Jesus gets to the heart of it. What he's saying, the reality is, is that this is just pride. This isn't spirituality. This isn't what being spiritual means. This is pride. And he demonstrates it because he says in reality, in reality that the, these scribes devours, they devour widows' houses. Now throughout the Bible, there, there's one, there are several groups of uh, people that, that seem to keep coming back, the orphans and widows that are to be protected and taken care of. And so this idea that Jesus is saying that they are devouring widows who are portrayed as, in the Scriptures as, as one of the weakest groups of people because they don't have a husband to take care of them and to supply them and to give them offspring and to provide resources and land for their family. That the scribes were not spiritual at all. In fact, they were prideful. And so prideful and greedy that they were devouring the weakest class of people in the society at that time, being widows. And Jesus is simply saying, beware of that. And our temptation may be to say, well, those nasty old scribes, I'm glad I'm not like them. But the reality is, is that we are more like the scribes than we like to admit. So maybe none of you have robes to wear to identify your spirituality. But we do have other things that we like to do to identify that we are spiritual people. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's uh, if you know someone's coming over to your house, you make sure you put your guidepost out there on the table. Or you make sure you put your Sunday school lesson out there so they know that, well, you must have been reading your Sunday school lesson this morning. Or you just leave your Bible open there on the table so they can see. Or maybe in conversation, you work in somehow what the Sunday school lesson was about last week so they know that you were paying attention to the Sunday school lesson. Not because you want to give them biblical knowledge, but because you want them to know... That you are this spiritual person who listens in Sunday school or does a Sunday school lesson. Or you you try to work into conversations things that that you do at church. Choir or teaching Sunday school or or whatever it is that, that we try to work in so that people know that I do this, therefore I'm a spiritual person. So I'm not putting on a robe in a literal sense. But I'm putting on something very similar to the scribes. Because I want people to, to have this perception that I am a spiritual person. 
yesterday, when I checked my mail, uh, Time Magazine was in the mailbox, and I was flipping through it last night and saw that there was a recent poll uh, by Gallup that said 92% of people in the, in the U.S. believe in God. 92%. Now, I don't know of any other question that you could ask Americans and get a 92% answer. But 92%, that's an amazing number. And as I see that, your first impression might be, wow, that's great, 92% of America believes in God. But as I look around our community, as I look around the things that I know, that 92% believes in a whole different God than I believe in. Because He has no relevance on their life. Whereas the God I believe in, that I believe is revealed in the Bible, is completely relevant for my life and influences everything that I do. And hopefully for you too. But the point is that just saying that you believe in God, or just saying that you believe in spiritual things, that you're a spiritual person, does not mean that that is true spirituality. Because the reality is you won't meet many people who are just stone cold, they don't believe in God. You will meet some. But the overwhelming majority of people, as this poll indicates, 92%, believe in some aspect of God or spirituality. And then they'll say, I'm a very spiritual person. But you start unpacking those things and you realize that there's no concept of the biblical God. There's no concept of Christ. There's no concept of sin and redemption and the gospel. They're just spiritual for the sake of being spiritual. And Jesus is saying, beware of these things. So in your long life, beware of wearing robes that give the appearance of spirituality. Because the reality is, some of you I know fairly well. It's impossible for me to know everybody in the congregation on an intimate level. It's not possible. You know, you, you have the ability to know a certain amount of people in your life very closely. And so the reality is, is that you can put on your robe for me. And you may even trick me. You may trick the people that are next to you in the pew. Because you know the right things to say. You know the right things to do. And just know that Jesus is saying, beware of that. Because are you, are you presenting yourself as being spiritual? But on the inside, you're bankrupt. Bankrupt. Because the only biblical sense of spirituality comes when the Spirit dwells in you. And the Spirit only dwells in those who have repented and claimed Christ as their Lord. This is why Paul says that our bodies are a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So beware of the appearance of spirituality. The second thing we see in verse 41 through 44 is to beware of the appearance of righteousness. Mark writes in verse 41, he says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Now, oftentimes when we read this passage, the first thing that we think about is that, well, these rich people are being condemned by Jesus, and this widow is being lifted up, because she gave everything she had, and the rich people didn't give everything they had. Now, it's very important to, to read what Mark says. Nowhere does Mark condemn the rich people. In fact, when you think about what the rich people did, it says that the rich people put in large sums of money. So if you were to, if I was to ask you, uh, how much money should a, should a rich person give to the church? You would say a large sum, which is, okay, a large, that's good, that's good, I'm glad. If you have a lot of money, give a lot of money. Praise the Lord. So Jesus isn't condemning them. And in the context of the previous passage, you remember what Jesus said about these scribes? He's saying that the scribes, what do they do? They devour widows. So he was, he was critiquing the, the, uh, the religious leaders in one sense and saying that they're insufficient. And then here he, he's in some ways critiquing the religious system and saying this is a system. He said, what kind of system is this that, that takes the last two coins of a widow? That throughout the scriptures, the, the religious leaders are supposed to be caring for the widows. And here they're devouring the widow. And the widow, they're taking the widow's last coins. So in this, he, he is critiquing the system of righteousness. For the system of righteousness was that if you give $100, then you're more righteous than the person who gives a dollar. Why is that? Because you gave 99 more dollars than the, than the person who had a dollar. And therefore, you're more righteous. And we do the same thing. If you our pastor, but then you're more righteous than everybody else. Just ask my mom. When we have Christmas holidays and stuff, who always has to pray for anything? Well, it's Corey, because he's a pastor. God hears his prayers. Well, I hope and trust that God hears my prayers, but guess what, Mom? He hears your prayers too. But you can't tell her that. Moms are biased. But you get the idea that you have this idea, well, well he's been to seminary, so he's more righteous. Or he's been to church for 15 years. I've only been to church for 5 years, so he's more righteous. Or, well, he's a deacon, or he does whatever. You can go on and on and on with a list of examples. But we have these, these concepts that if this person does A, B, and C, then they are more righteous than the person who does D, E, and F. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is that it's completely opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you're righteous by what? Or through what? By coming to church you become righteous? By abstaining from alcohol you become righteous? By being faithful to your wife you become righteous? By tithing 10% and even giving 5% extra you become righteous? That's what the Bible says, right? Amy says no. He's got one no out there. No. Our righteousness is obtained how? Through faith. What does it say about Abraham? Abraham believed in God 
He believed the promise of God and it was reckoned to him, it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's through faith in Christ that we are made righteous. And so Jesus is condemning here this this system where they're perceiving that because they gave more, that they were more righteous than this widow. When in fact he celebrates the widow because he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those. Now not literally she has she not put more in because she only put these two little coins that, that are worthless. It was a penny, a two pennies, five cents. And Jesus is saying that she's put more in because her heart and devotion is completely in God. The trust is 100%. And when we start talking about righteousness, there is no righteousness that is obtained outside of faith in Christ. So the warning here that Jesus is giving, and you'll beware of the appearance of righteousness, is beware of the things that we do that in the back of our mind we are thinking that I do this, therefore... I'm a more righteous person. I've been to church four weeks in a row now. Therefore, I'm more righteous. I've had a quiet time every morning this week. Therefore, I'm more righteous. I've been a Christian for 40 years. You've only been a Christian for a year. Therefore, I'm more righteous. I went on a mission trip. Therefore, I'm more righteous. The pastor asked me to serve on this committee, therefore I'm more righteous. Whatever it is. You go go on for an hour with illustrations. But the point is that we all have these things. And asking yourself now, what is it that I do? And when I do that, oftentimes it's even subconsciously. I think that I did this, therefore I'm more righteous than someone else. Taking an example from the news over the past few weeks, there have been several men that have been caught uh, in acts of infidelity in regards to their marriage. You've seen them. I'm not going to go into detail about them. But the temptation from, uh, I, maybe, maybe it's just me, maybe, but I'm a sinner like everyone else, so I, I think that we would all be tempted to do something similar to this, is you see that, And I can't believe they did that. You know, they're such a sinner. Which they are. But then leaving it at that and not realizing that were it not for God's grace, I would do the same thing. And in reality, would I want CNN to broadcast everything that I've done before? I personally would not. Because I would be in a lot worse condition than any political person that's had problems the last few weeks. And I think that if you are honest with yourself, that you don't want CNN talking about what you've done either. Whether it be this week, last week, or last year. But the temptation is that we have the desire oftentimes to pick people and say, well, I don't have that sin in my life, so therefore I'm more righteous than them, and therefore I'm a righteous person. 
It's easy to pick people that are maybe more visible in their sin than you are or that I am and say, well, in comparison to them, I'm a very righteous person. But guess what? That's your standard, not God's standard. God's standard is, if you want to ask yourself whether or not you're righteous, you must compare yourself to me, me being God. And on that standard, we quickly realize that in fact none of us are righteous. And that's why the Bible says there are none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when you're honest, you see the sins that are publicly displayed on the news the past few months, and you realize that I'm really no different than that person. The only thing that may separate me is I don't know their spiritual condition, but if they're not a Christian, let's assume they're not a Christian, so the only thing that would separate me from that person is the fact that on the day of judgment, I'm trusting in Christ for my righteousness. So that we're more, more honest about our unrighteousness. We're more honest about our sin. And the reality is, is that, you know what? I'm no different than that person. And that's why Jesus came. He came for sinners, not for the righteous. And so that on the day of judgment, through faith, God judges me not on the basis of whether or not I was faithful to my wife, but whether or not I had faith in Christ, trusting in His righteousness. And was Christ righteous? And the answer is yes. So we've seen that beware of the appearance of spirituality, beware of the appearance of righteousness, and then the last thing, beware of the appearance of majesty. This is in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says that as He came out of the temple, this is at Jesus, as Jesus came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, or there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So what's going on here? Jesus comes out of the temple, and one of his disciples just is in awe and saying, Jesus, look at this temple. Look at these buildings. How majestic and beautiful they are. And supposedly one rabbi said, if you haven't seen the temple, then you haven't seen beautiful buildings. But the temple was, by all standards, a beautiful and majestic structure. Gorgeous. And Jesus is simply saying, time out. Beware of being enthralled by the majestic outward image. Because on the inside, it's bankrupt. So our temptation is to, again, view things simply on the outward. We'll pass by a church and maybe they've got a big, nice new building, new gymnasium, you know, two-acre parking lot, ushers, all the bells and whistles. And they, Wow! That's a great church. They must really be doing things good. Maybe. But maybe not. I've seen stadiums that are beautiful. Doesn't mean that they're teaching God's Word. Jesus is saying something dramatic here. 
He is saying that this idea of the temple that the Jewish people were, were consumed with, he's saying that it's about to come down, figuratively and literally. In the figurative sense, when Jesus dies, what happens to the veil? It's torn. So in a figurative sense, the, 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 the necessity of the temple is done away with. It's, it's rendered meaningless. In a literal sense, in 70 A.D., just some 40 years after Jesus, the temple was destroyed and it hasn't been rebuilt since. So Jesus is saying that the time has now come to where the temple is not the central place for the worship of God. That the Spirit of God will dwell in God's people. And so that the reality is, is if sometime this week this building burns down, guess what? Redbud Baptist Church still exists. Because the church is not a building. This is a meeting place. I know we all call it a church, but it's not a church. It's wood, glass, carpet. It's a meeting place. It's where we meet together as the body of Christ. Where we come together once a week as brothers and sisters of Christ and saying that we are united in the fact that not we're all the same color, not we all live in the same place, not that we all have the same type of money or the same type of interest, but we are united in the fact that we all serve the same God. And we claim Christ as our Lord. And together we say that we are hopeless without the death and resurrection of Christ. Without His atoning sacrifice on our behalf, we are hopeless. So if we come here in rags, the reality is, is that the gospel is still real. The church and the gospel is not dependent upon me wearing a tie up here or you wearing a tie up here. It's not dependent upon us meeting right here. It's not dependent upon us meeting at 11 o'clock. All these things we do for practical purposes. But Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in the structure of the church and you miss the core which is Christ and as we see all these things where he's saying beware of apparent spirituality beware of apparent righteousness beware of apparent majesty that you might have all these bells and whistles going and, and lights and glitter and everything he's saying how majestic as this disciple was saying about the temple he's saying beware of all those things because they're bankrupt Unless, as what Mark wrote in the beginning of chapter 12 that we talked about a few weeks ago, Christ is the cornerstone. So if Christ is not the cornerstone of your spirituality, it's bankrupt. If Christ is not the cornerstone of your righteousness, it's bankrupt. If Christ is not the cornerstone of your idea of majesty and what is beautiful and, and splendid, then it's bankrupt. And therefore, beware of it. So in all of this, Mark is pointing to the centrality of Christ as this cornerstone for all things, for our spirituality, for our righteousness, and for our understanding of majesty. So let's go to Him in prayer.